Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, Madrid is over, Rome is already underway, and what a Madrid it was on my TV. I want to know what it was like in reality if you were courtside. Catherine Whittaker was exactly that. Catherine, hello. <laughs> hello, David. Tell me, tell me, tell me and Matt what it was like to be inside the big metal box, also known as the magic box. Mm. Well, the, the the metal box element of the Madrid Open is, is definitely the least appealing aspect of it. I mean, there's no getting around it. The venue is shocking, visually, aesthetically. I don't know what... I know we've probably talked about this. I mean, we're coming up to our 10-year anniversary, aren't we? We've probably said this annually for 10 years now. Um, Or when when did the Caja Magica come into beautiful existence? 2012? Anyway, it's hideous. And from a TV perspective, it's very, very difficult to find places to to film that that look visually pleasing or 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 even neutral you know the the default is visually displeasing i can see what they were aiming for you know uber modern edgy you know very architectural but i don't know it didn't it didn't work out but the center court when it's rocking and it's full is special it creates a very very uh electric pulsating atmosphere it's a very unforgiving center court if it's empty it feels hollow and echoey and even emptier than it actually is i think it's very it's very cold i mean it, it's it's metal um but standing courtside during some of the pulsating matches that we had over the course of the last week is something i'm going to remember forever I think um, it was extremely special and the whole week actually exceeded my expectations. Um, I've been to that tournament twice before um, and in, enjoyed it both times for a number of different reasons. One year I saw Andy Murray win here. He beat Rafael Nadal in the final. That was very special, but I I didn't warm to it as a venue. I didn't feel like I had many experiences of it at its at its peak potential and I do this week feel like I experienced that and it was extremely special. Mm. Matt, uh, you had a, a similar one I think. The first time the Davis Cup finals were held there, didn't you, when Nadal was was roaring and, and it was all going off. Um, so it's just me who's had the rubbish experiences. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Although I would, um, I would raise Catherine's cold in May and give you my uh, magic box in November. That is my overwhelming memory of the magic box. It is freezing because the majority of the venue is outdoors. It's only actually the actual stadiums, the seats in the stadiums, which are indoors. All the walking around is quite exposed and, yeah, very, very cold in November. But, as you said, when the Dahl's playing, pulsating. It's a very uh, COVID-friendly venue, isn't it? It's Mm. one of those, like all the temporary structures that have sprung up 
that sprung up during the course of, you know, various lockdowns, sort of how to be outdoors when really you're indoors. Uh, the Kaya Magica <laughs> achieved that way ahead of its time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, we're going to warm you up with lots of chat about uh, Carlos Alcaraz and Ons Jabeur, who were uh, set in the place alight, really, atmospherically uh, over the last uh, 10 days or so. Uh, we'll also warm you up, dear listener, with some news of our Wilson um, competition for Run and Garros tickets uh, on the 27th of May. Because if you become a friend of the tennis podcast, you can enter our exclusive competition. Um, and yeah, we will uh, we will send you the link uh, to enter our competition. Two tickets to Run and Garros. All you got to do is become a friend. If you are one already and you haven't been able to get our newsletter for whatever reason, just let us know. Send us an email to friends at tennispodcast.net and we'll sort you out with that link. Uh, and we are going to be in Roland Garros as well in a, a couple of weeks' time because the Tennis Podcast is going to the French Open for the first time ever. And we're getting a Tennis Podcast Towers in Paris, Catherine. Le Tour Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Um, right then, Madrid. Let's talk uh, first of all about Carlos Alcaraz, shall we? Because this guy has managed to beat Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic and Alexander Zverev in three days to win the title. I mean, that doesn't do it justice just saying that, does it? I mean, we saw it on the telly. I've asked you about it, what it's like in the Magic Box, Catherine. I, I, I'm very curious to know how the Carlos Alcaraz experience in person compares to others that you've had courtside in the course of your, your career. I mean, you've been... At a lot of big moments, really, over the course of time. And uh, I mean, I'm, I always think, well, what does the drop shot sound like with the crowd intake of breath and all that sort of thing? But just generally, what sort of buzz does he create versus some of the others that you can think of? Oh, crikey. I mean, let's stick a big recency bias uh, warning on this podcast right now, shall we? Because... Uh, just at this moment, and I'm, you know, I'm in the immediate aftermath of it all, and I was standing a few metres away from it, and you probably know that because I'm very aware that our presentation position for Prime Video was right in the back of the, the shot the whole time. Uh, we didn't ask to be there. There was nowhere else for us to, to stand or sit and watch the match. We had no choice but to uh, video bomb pretty much 100% of all the centre court action. Um, so, yes, I am I am very conscious that I'm about to say something that is guilty of extreme recency bias, but I also don't know how to eliminate it from how I'm thinking and how I'm feeling right now. So let's just stick the warning on and proceed as we were. Um, it's incomparable. Really, in terms of the tennis, I'm not sure I've seen anything like it, quite frankly. He's quicker, he's stronger, he's more powerful, he's got lighter touch. Not than anyone has ever had any one of those individual things, although possibly a couple of them. I'm not sure I've ever seen a a ball be hit that hard consistent, consistently. Maybe, you know, the odd thundercrack forehand from Juan Martín del Potro, the odd shot here and there. But his baseline weight of shot, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen that combination with touch and feel before. And uh, we had Martina Navratilova involved in our coverage on Prime Video over the weekend. And she was particularly taken by the fact that his feel doesn't seem to wane when it gets tight. She said, usually when you get tight and everybody gets tight, the feel is the first thing to go. And she was waiting for it to happen. And it just it just never did. Now, whether that's the beauty of youth, you know, he does seem utterly fearless. Um, and he is only 19 years old. But it also seems to be something quite special about Carlos Alcaraz. And she also pointed out that, yes, the drop shot is utterly dreamy. But what actually makes it so potent is the fact that it is combined with such brute power because opponents have no choice but to respect that power and back off the ball, which just makes you his drop shot prey, doesn't it? He's got you right where he wants you. And yet, 
as much as I'm sure all the players know that they're falling into his trap, I'm not sure what you do. Mm. Um, because his ball is so big that I'm not sure you can just say, oh, well, I'm going to stand up on the baseline and take it early and half volley it. I'm just not sure that's possible. It wasn't even possible for Novak Djokovic. Um, and maybe a somebody will crack the code and create a formula for beating him, as is often the case when young players break through and they bring something new and they shock the tour. Someone, someone cracks the code and the template is created for, for others to follow. Maybe that'll happen, but I, I can't only not see what that template is. I can't conceive of what it might be. Um, there's just no chinks, let alone holes. Um, and none of the pundits that know better than me on a technical level have been able to conceive of what that that formula might be either. Mm. So it is an intoxicating combination of skills. And that's not even to mention the the poise and the way he deals with the just mounting immense pressure on his shoulder shoulders and the emotional hurricane that it must be to beat Rafael Nadal the day after your 19th birthday and then to come back and beat Djokovic the next day and then for that not even to be the summit of the mountain um goodness me we've we've got something on our hands in Carlos Alcaraz oh yeah um this drop shot by the way you add in the disguise i i don't know when it's coming and so and you can tell that players don't know when it's coming because once he's hit two or three of them you can see them thinking oh it's coming and they make a few like a half a step forward and then realize no no he's blasted me into smithereens at the back of the court so what do you do uh matt i was doing parenting duties on saturday so i was sort of trying to watch the Djokovic match on my phone silently uh whilst i was supposed to be overseeing some 10 pin bowling um but um, this run of matches, he's beaten Nadal in three sets despite turning his ankle halfway through. And I think that's a pretty monumental mental achievement to to, to not panic and, and just completely capitulate at that point. I mean, he lost that second set 6-1, didn't he? And then he's... Then he's come back and he's outlasted Novak Djokovic from a set down in three hours, 40-odd minutes. And then he's gone and drubbed Alexander Zverev the following day. Which which of them impressed you the most and why? Well, I think what makes this title run so extraordinary is the package, isn't it? It's the one after the other. So they're all impressive in their own right. And together they're even more impressive. But hands down for me, the one that stands out is the win over Djokovic. Um, Alexander Zverev didn't really show up in the final and Alcaraz was toying with him and he just put him away inside an hour. He just frankly showed himself to be a better, more complete tennis player, really, even in conditions which I think favour Zverev. The Nadal match was a bit weird with the injury and there was a big interruption in the crowd as well. It was just it just had a bit of a weird rhythm to it, that match. I found it quite difficult to gauge. But I do think we cannot downplay what Alcaraz did there, beating Nadal in Madrid, his hero, his icon, uh, you know, doing that for the first time. That's a big, big moment for Alcaraz. And the way he finished that match off, I think, really sort of demonstrated everything that he's about. So that was that was impressive. But I just thought he took it up another level with the win over Djokovic for for many reasons, really. You know, we've mentioned the drop shot already. That obviously stood out. The way that complements his power blows my mind. The fact he can do it off his forehand and his backhand as well, I think, is kind of another weapon. Or or on a volley. He can do a nice touch drop volley. Um, I discovered that he's got this amazing kick serve in that match against Djokovic. And I'm sure he was slightly aided by the altitude and the conditions. And it remains to be seen whether he can do that at sea level quite so effectively. But Novak Djokovic is the best returner I've ever seen. And he was really struggling to get that Alcaraz kick serve 
back in the court, frankly. I mean, uh, Alcaraz was using that for cheap points. He puts you in the flower pots, doesn't he, out on the side of the court, he, is his goal with that kick serve. Yeah, he does. He literally does. Um, and he occasionally uses it to set up the point. Uh, so he can use it in lots of different ways. And that, I thought, was amazing. There's also just the mentality that he displayed, I thought, was incredible. Um a lot of it was resilience because there were a lot of moments there where I felt like maybe he might let it slip because he had a chance, couldn't quite convert it. Djokovic saved it, you know, showed us who he is. And so often he goes on to win the match from that position, Novak Djokovic. But Alcaraz just created another opportunity and took that opportunity. So I found that resilience mentally pretty amazing. He also did it for, you know, three hours against Novak Djokovic. He sustained a, a level that was really high. You know, sometimes players do it for a set. Sometimes they might do it for two sets. You know, he did it for three sets, really. Out hitting Djokovic, I think, double the number of winners, which was just amazing. Um, and this was Djokovic playing well. You know, this was, I would say Nadal was a sort of six or seven out of ten. But I felt like Djokovic was, was playing well. And he would sometimes deploy his very best shots Djokovic you know his backhand down the line he would hit and you'd think okay fine Djokovic has got him now he's he's just, he's found the backhand down the line does Alcaraz have an answer to that and he did like the very next point Djokovic tried it again and Alcaraz turned the tables on him hit a winner up the line with his forehand and he was just doing things that you haven't really seen players do before to Djokovic and he was also embracing the moment. He's just appeared to be loving it, smiling, jumping up and down, fist pumping. And so many players are good tennis players, but great tennis players have a different sort of quality about them, which is really hard to define. And Alcaraz seems to have that. He plays his best tennis in the big moments, which is what Djokovic has done, Federer's done, Nadal's done over the years. Alcaraz is doing that to these players that I've not really seen before from a young player and I'm such a big believer in the pack hunter theory that beating one of these players is hard but possible beating them back to back over consecutive days on clay had literally never been done before he was the first player ever to do that and you know, if we take 2011 onwards, Djokovic, which is kind of when he became the great player that he is, nobody's done it back to back on any surface. So, you know, quite literally, he's doing things which no one's done before. And I'm sure people will point to the fact that this wasn't peak Nadal. This wasn't peak Djokovic. But I'm sure it hasn't been peak Nadal and peak Djokovic in the past for other players. And they've not been able to do it. There was still reigning Grand Slam champions. Djokovic is the world number one. They're still pretty much at the top of their game. And Alcaraz beat them on back-to-back -back days, age 19. I think I think we're right to be Just. getting hyped about this. Yeah, two days into his uh, 20th year. <laughs> he, got a, he got a nicer cake than he got last year, didn't he? <laughs> last year he got a bruising defeat and a sort of slightly pooey-looking cake. <laughs> this year... <laughs> this year... A Brilliant victory. Um, who was the win on his birthday? Was it Cameron Norrie? Yes. It was Cameron Norrie. Uh, 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 actually, Norrie, Norrie pushed him fairly close, actually. Um, although it did always feel like Alcaraz was going to win. But it was all about the cake, really, wasn't it? Um, and, of course, we had been tipped off that that presentation ceremony was planned regardless of outcome. But it was a handsome enough cake that I think it would have looked silly <laughs> handing it to maybe they, maybe to they a got defeated a, maybe player. they got like a one if you lost you know sort of like a bit of a damn it's it's, one. it's an interesting benchmark though isn't it because last year they went ahead with the cake ceremony on his 18th birthday even though he'd just been hammered by nadal and that didn't feel awkward that felt like a really nice moment because it was still a special occasion, just seeing him play Nadal and the fact that it was, you know, a one-sided beatdown wasn't surprising or, you know, it, it wasn't something that would necessarily have 
left Alcaraz crushed and in a state of not wanting to receive public cake. Um, but this year, I think it would have been deeply weird and and awkward had they gone ahead with cake in the event of defeat. But I think they were just probably that confident that he was he was going to win that they they put the turbochargers on the cake makers <laughs> and brought out sparklers with the cake. And, mm. and actually, actually, it's a perfect illustration that isn't it of Alcaraz's progression last year. He was happy enough to receive a cake off the back of a trouncing against Nadal. This year, he's beaten Nadal. Like, not many players can make that jump in a year, I don't think. And, and still gets cake. And that's serving mm. out. Had his cake and date it. Serving out to beat Nadal with his full repertoire. A drop shot winner, a serve and volley, showing that he's got touch and nous and understanding of of a way to win a point under pressure. And then to finish it with a swerving forehand around Nadal in the sort of manner that Nadal's been doing to everybody else on the planet for the last 15 years. Just felt perfect, really, in that regard. Um, And then Alcaraz, well, as I thought he might, withdrew immediately from Rome and, and just dealt the ultimate power play, as if to say, there you are, lads. I've beaten you all to a pulp. Enjoy yourselves in Rome. I'll see you in Paris. And um, and I do. I, I, I'm really interested now because it's not just his power play. Because now we're going to get Djokovic and Nadal and the other best players in the world studying this guy, and they're going to get their coaches on the job, and they're probably going to talk amongst themselves. And Djokovic is going to go back and watch videos of himself beating goodness knows who from the last 15 years and so and Nadal can dip into his reservoir of memory of of 13 Roland Garros titles just just to remind themselves how how great they they truly are so what happens when it all comes together is so fascinating isn't it when we get to Roland Garros and you've got this young kid who just has just been beating everybody but we've got these guys who have been there done it and have nothing to prove and have still got stuff left in the tank. I mean, they're, they're, it's very interesting looking at the... And we, we don't accept betting sponsorship here on the tennis podcast. It's something we're, we're very very uh, adamant about. But I, I was curious to have a little look about uh, the betting odds just to see what the book is made of it all right now after Madrid. And they've got Alcaraz second favourite for Roland Garros, a whisker behind the Dow and a head of the defending champion, Novak Djokovic. I I do think that that is maybe an overreaction, personally, in terms of, I think Djokovic, you know, he played pretty well in that match, and he he was only just beaten by Alcaraz. So I think he would probably be a bit miffed about that if somebody told him. Don't you? He's third favourite. Oh, I definitely think he would be miffed, um... <clears throat> whether it's right or wrong is is really fascinating i don't th- i think if you asked around every tennis expert pundit ex player you like i'm not sure you'd find any picking djokovic ahead of alcaraz at the moment that doesn't mean djokovic doesn't have a chance and it's not close but i'm not sure you'd find any i think i think nadal has to be the official favorite because he has 13 Roland Garros titles. Are you Can picking say him? that again? 13. Who are you picking? If I, were an odds com- if I were an odds compiler, I would put Nadal as the favourite. But I am right now, and I reserve the right to change my mind after Rome, right now I'm picking Alcaraz. Okay. I do think he's going to win it. Matt, how big is five sets? When we get to Roland Garros, Novak Djokovic so good at navigating five-set matches. We saw it when he's two sets to love down against Tsitsipas last year, finds a way through. When uh, when he got Mazzetti to retire for the fans in the two sets to love down match, uh, you know, he's so, so Did good. it again this week, guys. Yeah, he did. Uh, he manages these five-set matches. N- Nadal eats five-set matches for breakfast. You know, Alcaraz has barely even seen one on telly. He's, you know, let alone play uh, hang on, Hang on. Beat it to pass at the US Open last year in a pretty epic. All right. Was that, yeah, but... That was a five-set. Yeah, fifth-set tie-break. Yeah. But still, mm. 
I don't know. I mean, get him deep into these these tournaments against these two over five sets of Roland Garros. That is a different situation to what we've just had, isn't it? It's a factor. Absolutely, it's a factor. It it will make a difference, and I think it does favour Nadal and Djokovic for all the reasons you've said there. I don't think Alcaraz will struggle, though, with it. You know, physically, he looks so strong. He looks ready to go four or five hours, you know, consecutive days even. He's, you know, he said, didn't he? He was asked by Martina Navratilova on the on the prime coverage and in this amazing, brilliant moment of self-awareness, he was asked, how did you not get tired? You know, how did you do this? How did you back it up? And he just said, well, I'm 19. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I really wanted to pop back at him there. Mate, I've been 19. <laughs> I really feel like we've had different experiences of being 19. I know you're only three days in. You think you're the only person who's ever done 19, don't you? (laughs) We've all been there. We were just rubbish at it. All right? Okay. Yeah, so physically, I'm not worried about Alcaraz. Physically, I'm more worried about Nadal. Look, Nadal is my pick for Roland Garros. I think he will always be my pick for Roland Garros just because of his record there. I'm... Pretty sure I've probably said he's not going to win it in the past and he has won it and I've felt like an idiot. You know, I don't want to say Nadal is not going to win Roland Garros and then Nadal win Roland Garros because that's just what he does. And he is so great at that tournament. I'm just always going to pick him. I am worried about the foot a little bit for him. You know, he mentioned it this week again. I think he's going to continue mentioning it. He's in pain with it. It is about managing that pain and... We've seen him overcome the pain this year in Australia, so that gives me great belief. But we've also kind of seen him succumb to that pain before last year, for example, even in the fourth set against Novak Djokovic of that amazing match they played at Roland Garros. He was hobbling. So it's possible that could happen again. But I just think while Alcaraz rests in this Rome week, it's possible that Nadal gets what he needs to be as close to 100% as he can be for Roland Garros. And that that is a different force to what Alcaraz felt in Madrid. You know, Nadal, Nadal does not love those conditions. He actually said that in an ideal world, he would have come back in Estoril, this comeback, because he wanted to play at sea level. But he wasn't ready in time, so it had to be Madrid. And Nadal on clay is really aggressive when he's at his best. He's dominating points. He's smothering opponents. He wasn't doing that at all to Alcaraz. He was reacting. And that might be because Alcaraz is so good that Nadal can't do it. But I still think Nadal can go up some levels. And if he does go up those levels, that's a different prospect for Alcaraz. And as good as Alcaraz is at the net and at finishing points in different ways, that's where I think Nadal has really developed his game as well. He can win points in different ways and finish points at the net. So honestly... Get me to Paris. I am so <laughs> excited about how the Nadal, Djokovic, Alcaraz trio plays out. It is it's as tantalizing a prospect going into a slam as I can remember really. I think it's fascinating. Matt, I don't want to make you um <laughs> combust, <laughs> but I think it is entirely possible that they could all three be in the same half of the draw. Oh, wow, yes, I think you're right. Do I want that? Yeah, I don't... I want the matches to happen. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want them oh. at the end of the tournament. Maybe they could just play their own French Open. Can you imagine the 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 relief on the faces of the next gen if Alcaraz, Nadal and Djokovic are left to tear one another apart in one side of the drawer and they get to pootle through in the other... <laughs> They do all look like they've seen a ghost, don't they? Oh, yeah. They were not banking on on this when they thought they had timed their ascent to the top of tennis to just, you know, they come were look, after They were the looking back at, at Dimitrov and Raonic going, ha. Yeah. Nishikori's laughing T- now. Timing, timing is everything, guys. And I'm going to have a window of that lot. Yeah, Who's and look, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that Sit to pass, Medvedev, Spozverev, 
are not going to win any slams and Medvedev's already won one. You know, Alcaraz is not going to win every slam No, <laughs> from now until the end of his career, even if he continues playing this level forever. You know, it just doesn't work like that. It's not possible. So I'm, I'm sure they will. Um, but he has changed... Alcaraz is changing the course of the future that they all envisioned post Big Three era, for sure. For sure. And I think the rug is pulled out from under them all, rather. And it'd be interesting to see how much how much they can improve to, to catch up, quite frankly. Sitsapas, I don't think, is far off on clay. I do think he's off. Um, I would back Alcaraz to beat Sitsapas at the French Open, but I think he's far closer than the rest. I do think that semi-final performance against Zverev on Saturday night was bizarre from Sitsapas, actually. It was a, a strange flat, irritable performance from him. Bet he's a different um, bloke at Paris, though. You know He is, he is. And I do, you know, I put him a, a close fourth behind the three that we're talking about. I really do. Um, I've been really reminded just how much of a beast he is on clay over the, over the course of the past few weeks. Um, <laughs> but I still think Alcaraz changes the game for him, changes the complexion of his the rest of his career i do wow this is amazing i mean the, the the prospect of domination for any of them i think is gone yeah i'd agree with you there um scheduling matt was alexander zverev shafted did that did that the fact that he ended up getting on the court i mean he reckons in his post-match press conference, he said nothing about this on court when he was telling everybody that Madrid's his favourite tournament on earth. But in his post-match press conference, he was asked about Carlos Alcaraz's performance and then about his second sentence. He he went off on one about how he was getting to bed at 4am and how the ATP had done a terrible job scheduling everything. Uh, has he got a point? Yes, he does have a point. Uh, because, frankly, the scheduling throughout Madrid, I think... A joke and we'll come on to it in terms of why it's more of a joke for the women uh, it impacts them a lot more than the men it is a tournament structured to favor the men uh, it's just this one match uh, where Zverev ended up finishing very late and he does have a point because I think that is unacceptable annoyingly in tennis it's accepted you know it is accepted that matches finish beyond midnight for some reason it is the only sport as far as i'm aware that continually plays in the middle of the night for some reason and you know you could make a sort of cultural case that madrid is different to london for example and a lot more people will be at the matches at midnight than they would be here and there was a decent crowd for that zverev sits a pass semi-final but it still has an impact on the players and it's still kind of unfair to them to then have to come back the next day, especially when you've got a split session semi-final. One's finishing in the afternoon, one's finishing in the evening. The person who finishes in the evening has got way less recovery time. Um, so I, I do think it's unfair and I do think he has a point. I don't think it's the reason he lost the match. And I think he did a real he did a real 180, didn't he? He, he was praising the tournament as much as anyone possibly can in his post-match speech on the court. And then he just went in on the ATP in the press conference. Um, I think it was a contributing factor, perhaps, to his performance. But I don't think it was the reason. I think Alcaraz was was just better and is better, quite frankly. Hmm. Um, Matt referenced, Catherine, the that the women have got the bigger gripe here the fact that uh, they were scheduled for their final sandwiched between these two semi-finals on the Saturday when the men had finals day their finals day all to themselves on the Sunday a hugely different scenario they ended up taking to the court a good couple of hours later than the sort of not before time that was given on the order of play did Honest Jabir and um, Jessica Pagula and they took to the court 
when the crowd were emotionally exhausted after cheering to the rafters, rafters for three and a half hours for Alcaraz and Djokovic. So they left, went to the loo, had something to eat, and the the final was half over before people were really coming back into their seats. I mean, just on about on every level, that is that is just plain rude, if nothing else, from the from and disrespectful from the organisers to to schedule the women like that. And I I can't believe that more of a fuss wasn't made of this what I mean you know we had Steve Simon on the podcast the other week and it was great to hear from him and he he answered all the questions but why is that why are they not going nuts about this why aren't they telling everybody that this is unacceptable to to be treated like this yeah I couldn't agree more the fact that it happens is almost secondary to the fact that tennis just seems to shrug its shoulders (laughs) about it same as Matt was saying with the the late finishes it's the acceptable is accepted in tennis and it doesn't have to be like that as long as it's I the know. women it's acceptable imagine if this was the men imagine the, the mm. if it was the which it never is it i cannot remember ever having a men's final sandwiched between two women's semi-finals and having to be shunted about in the order of play and all the rest of it and and not have the spotlight to it. So I, it's, mm. I don't, I'm not aware of it ever having happened. And I tell you what, and, and what imagine what, what it would be like if it did. Well, Zverev laid into the the schedule. I'm not, I'm not sure it was the right direction of attack to go for the ATP on that rather than the tournament, by the way. Perhaps the ATP have a say and they lobby on behalf of their players in the schedule. But I believe the majority responsibility for the schedule goes to the tournament so I think it just sort of conveniently suits his current agenda to be you know directing his ire towards towards the ATP as a side note but what happened to to him and Sitsipas on their semi-final night which I, I agree with Matt is unacceptable I agree with Zverev it's unacceptable I also agree wholeheartedly that it is not why he lost that final um <clears throat> But it had happened to Jessica Bagula and Jill Teichman the night before, um, and nobody had even barely mentioned it, or a couple of nights before, rather, because, of course, the men got the quarterfinal stage all to themselves on Friday, didn't they? Um, the women had played their semis on the Thursday, so the men get Friday quarterfinals all to themselves. Oh, I, I mean, it, it's... It's so depressingly predictable, um, and and maybe maybe that's why we're all so jaded about it, and we're not up in arms more because cause it's consistently happening, and there's only so much energy to devote to raising one's arms. But um, yeah, if anybody next time anybody even considers throwing the market forces argument out there in defence of unequal prize money or unequal scheduling or unequal anything, frankly, in tennis. You need to look at what happened on Saturday in Madrid um, and on countless other occasions in the tennis calendar this year and any year and realise how truly uneven and rigged the playing field is um that was an inconsistent analogy i was trying to find a an economics version of a playing field um the forces are working in oh somebody help me well no i mean i know exactly what you're saying when's the men's final it's uh whenever it was five thirty on sunday when's the women's final oh i don't know because it depends on the men's match yeah hmm there's your there's your stage lads go and enjoy it oh women we'll just we'll fit you in when we when we when we've got the men's matches done all right Uh, and for anybody saying look you know it was it was completely exceptional the Djokovic Alcaraz match was completely exceptional um you know it was it was a really extreme example um a couple of things here. Number one, I mean, that match being as exceptional as it was, was the dream for the tournament. If you'd offered them that, they would have 
bitten your hand off at the start of the day. So best case scenario for the tournament when they set that schedule, they are wanting the women's final to be delayed. They are wanting it not to go on on time. They are wanting those players to be put through the ringer. Goodness knows how many times they had to warm up. That is the ideal scenario for the tournament. And that suddenly feels quite sinister when you think of it like that. The starting point for the schedule should be right. It is women's finals day. How do we make sure the women start an appointed time and get the spotlight today? And you work backwards from there. I guarantee it's possible. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, tennis podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Let's talk about those women that deserve that spotlight, um, Onstjabur and Jessica Pagula, who played a three-set final. J- just... Just before we talk about that specific match, Catherine, compare and contrast for me and rate, respectively, the Anstjabur drop shot against the Carlos Alcaraz drop shot. Oh, that's a horrible question. <laughs> I resent it. Is it a draw? I, I do think she's got the best drop shot in women's tennis. Um, and I really hate that you've put me in a position of saying that because I hate the you know, using women's as a qualifier in that sentence. I do think with Alcaraz, it is, it's the combination with the power that is, it is, is so seductive. With Jabur, it's... She's a, she's a magician, really, with it, isn't she? She could hit it behind her back, I think. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. With her eyes closed. And For fun. Anytime. Yeah, there's something so... Um, ethereal about it, almost ethereal about her 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 tennis generally. The way she changes direction on the ball, and and she actually has the combination with power. It's just it's just obviously not quite as blow your socks off power as Carlos Alcaraz has. I think she is extraordinary, Onsjabur. I think she is not only a beautiful tennis player who must have been inspired in recent years by Ash Barty and the way that Ash Barty found a way to, as you always put it, David, package her tools to create a winning formula. She must have looked and gone, huh, I've got those tools as well. If I can just crack this and find a way to put it all together, then Sky's the limit for me, and of Has course the, the mentality is is followed. Is, I'm bu- I'm busy making a point. I don't wish to make any bold predictions right now, David. <laughs> um, I would like to you, talk Matt? about how she's a pioneer and a trailblazer for Arab sportswomen and Arab women in general. I yep. think 
the importance and significance of that cannot be underestimated. And I particularly love the way that she embraces it and leans into it. She is happy and privileged to be a representative for for women and for sport in Arab nations. And that is taking an awful lot of additional pressure on her shoulders for a woman that has perhaps struggled, struggled um, historically in a lot of the pressure moments. She had had a really bad record in finals coming into this match, hasn't she? And to to accept the mantle of playing not just for yourself, but for Tunisia and Arab nations and Arab women and Muslim women, I find incredible really because there's there's a lot of players in tennis that that don't embrace something bigger when they could. And I get it. It's an incredibly demanding sport. Incredibly. It's an incredibly selfish sport. But when they do embrace standing for something bigger, Naomi Osaka, Coco Goff, there are other examples. But when they do, it matters and it is worthy of praise. And, of course, there was that moment on the the podium with Jessica Pagula when they were presented with the a bottle of champagne each because the tournament has a champagne partner, as most tournaments do. And there was a really awkward moment where Ons Bird obviously didn't want to make things uncomfortable for anybody, but also didn't want to have her photo taken um, holding a bottle of champagne. And she, she dealt with it incredibly elegantly. Um, and I don't want to um, criticise too much about the fact that 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 uncomfortable moment happened and wasn't foreseen because it only emphasises really the fact that this has never happened before. An Arab woman has never stood on a stage like that and had a moment like that. And hopefully the fact that that happened and Osjabur is doing these things means that it won't happen again. And that that's significant. I think she's, I think she's incredible. What did we see uh, in terms of a match, in terms of a final match between these two? Well, I think what I loved about Ons Jabeur all week is that there were these new elements to her. You know, I think particularly against Bengcic and against Halep, who were players she hadn't beaten before. She sort of showed a slightly different side. She certainly against Bengcic slightly simplified her game, I felt. But really, I think it was it was the ons we've always known and loved, just just a better version. And I think we saw that in the final because she had the blip, you know, she had the second set where her game disappeared from her and she lost its six love. And you could you could see the exasperation and the stress. And I think she said she was breathing like a pregnant woman. You know, she was really, really panicking a bit, I think, in that in that final because it had happened to her before. And she's she subsequently said to the WTA insider that her heart couldn't take another disappointment. So she was in a position which she's been in before, and yet she managed to change that story for herself. You know, she'd lost four deciding sets in finals, and this one, there was a grit about her, and she went out and raised her game again in the third set and won it. And I kind of loved that, that it was recognisably still on Jabur, but just a better version. And I don't think it's a coincidence that she was travelling with her psychologist with her for just, I think, the second tournament ever. Um, and she's spoken about the difference it made having her psychologist with her in person as opposed to just making phone calls or talking on Zoom or something like that. And I'm sure we, I'm sure everyone can relate to that you know, over the last two years, how much, how much more impactful in-person conversations are and just what it means to have people around you. And yeah, I think having the psychologist there to observe her during matches, during practice, just around the grounds, I think all made a difference and all helped to make this, you know, the best tournament of Ons, Ons Jabeur's life. And I think she's amazing. And when we, when we talk about her as a pioneer and as a trailblazer there are very big hurdles that she had to overcome which other players from some European nations for example or America for instance just didn't have to face you know she 
she has not been able to see it to be it. She's just had to be it. Um, she's had a lot of sponsors turn her down. She's not had the financial help that some players will have had. And I went back and looked at the early part of her career. She had, I think, 11 main draw WTA wildcards, which isn't a lot. And most of those were Doha or Rabat or Marrakesh. She just didn't get that many opportunities. She had to work her way. She's done that all throughout her career. She's just incrementally improved kind of season upon season. And we are where we are now. And she's won the biggest title of her life. I think, I think it's an amazing story. Mm. Is she in the mix at Roland Garros? Or could she be once the draw is made in just over a week from now? Oh, I knew this was coming. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Despite everything I've just said. <laughs> <laughs> I think, David, I think I'd be very surprised if in 12 months' time I weren't putting her in my French Open mix. I think the game is there. I do. Um... I wonder if sort of belief-wise she still has one or two more steps to go before a Grand Slam title feels achievable. And I do think belief is very crucial for Ons Jabeur. I've seen such development in that department recently. Um, There's also the question mark of whether it's a mix of one in the women's game, whether anybody other than Iga Svantec would be a surprise. Let's TBC on that until the end of Rome, shall we? All right. Okay. Well, if you wonder what the mix is, what are we talking about? Uh, Matt, stick in our show notes a link to our Tennis Podcast terminology page on the Tennis Podcast website, which we've written uh, precisely just to let you know what the mix and pack hunters... And also to remind ourselves what the mix is. <laughs> yeah, and all those things are. It's our glossary. I think we stitched ourselves up when we set the definition. But anyway. Yeah, well, we're, we're we not stopping we now. Are. We've been doing this for 10 years. We're going to carry on. Um, right. So anyway, well done, Ons Jabeur. Well done, Jessica Pagula as well, because she had a fantastic tournament. She does it all so quietly, doesn't she? And uh, in a sort of organized, low-key way. But she's had a fantastic tournament and, and a really good progression, I think, Matt, over the last couple of years. This isn't isn't just out of nowhere, is it? No, that's right. It's really been a couple of years that she's been building, improving. And I think the fact she's having this season quarterfinal in Australia, semi-final in Miami, final in Madrid, off the back of what she did last year where, you know, it was her best season ever. She probably never wanted it to end. There had to be a sort of thought that she might not be able to repeat that again. And she is, she's bettering it. And I just think she's she's underrated precisely because of kind of her demeanour and how, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, how unspectacular she is. You know, we love Ons Jabeur for as I said, hitting drop shots behind her back and doing these sort of wizardry things on the court. But Jessica Pagula is kind of fascinating for a different way because she manages to stay so calm and composed and doesn't get flustered by things and really turns that into her strength. Um, I heard Laura Robson in, in the commentary box on one of her matches this week talk about how she's like that off court as well. And it's kind of her strength in life, I think, really. And... You know, she dealt with a rain delay, for example, really well. I think when she played Andrescu, she just took it in her stride, came back and just returned to hitting big ground strokes from the baseline because that's what she does. So I think she's I think she's really impressive. And I thought her tweets after the match where she was uh, she she posted that that champagne she'd been given. You could see her reflection in it. And she said kind of I think what summed up tennis really for a lot of players you know she's playing again in two days in a different city in a different tournament and she's got to move on from this moment but she's kind of trying to enjoy it while it lasts kind of thing and I'm pleased because I've heard a lot of players talk about how they don't enjoy the moments and okay she didn't win the title but I think she recognizes that it was still a big week for her and yeah she's great Mm, she's great 
Uh, as you say, she moves on to Rome. If she wins the title there, she'll win €332,000, which is €504,000 less than the men's champion will win. So it's less than half of the same tournament for the same category of event. Just have a think about that. It's just absolutely outrageous. And again, it's time for more of an outrage to be heard, I think, about about all this. Um, but anyway, that's, that's we, the We should all be absolutely up in arms about that. Men, women, it cannot continue. It is unacceptable. I mean, the, the, the tournament organisers should feel so much shame. I mean, they're selling tickets. They should be being asked about it. For, 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 the, for the tournament. They're not selling tickets for the men's event and the women's event. Or, you know, they're hosting this, this tournament on their grounds. Same number of matches to win the title. And, you, and one, one gender is getting more than double. What the other one's getting? It's just it's, it's, what message does, does that send? If your daughter asked you about that, why do they do that? Um, what on earth would you say? I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm like I, I'm scared to tell her because because unfortunately, you are growing up in a world where women are valued less than men, where things associated with women, things traditionally feminine, are valued less than men. That is the answer. And if if you're listening to this and you think, yep, that's the world I want to live in, then, well, you probably don't enjoy this podcast very much. <laughs> um, but fine. But I hope you're listening to this thinking, let's change that as a matter of urgency. Mm. Incredibly, some people do listen to this podcast, even though they appear to hate us. But anyway... Um... <laughs> What I would say is tennis <laughs> Tennis gives itself a big pat on the back because of the fact that the Grand Slams have equal prize money. And that is brilliant. You know, that is something worth celebrating. Those are the most prestigious events. It's an amazing headline. But this is the week-in, week-out reality. You know, I think Rome might be the worst, but it's also bad at a lot of other tournaments. There's, there's, there's a big battleground here on which to fight, and it, it doesn't get talked about enough because I think you can hide behind the Grand Slams. And just to address, again, the market forces issue is not an issue. But anyway, the market forces defence, because it is the one that is most lazily and most frequently flung at a situation like this. This prize money situation will be reflected in other financial arrangements behind the scenes. Women are earning 40% of what the men earn. They've got 40% of what the men are getting to promote the sport, to attract the eyeballs. Those are the market forces that you're referring to. Those are not equal terms. It's your... your Tying women's hands behind their back and saying, why aren't you winning the egg and spoon race? It's ludicrous. And it's lazy to resort to that. It's it's not a fair fight. It is 40% of a fair fight. Why does it need to be a fight anyway? Just Just hold the tournament and give them the same, for God's sake. It's the tournament. <laughs> not blood. Oh. It's a fight, David. It's a fight. It shouldn't be a fight. It's bloody ridiculous. Anyway, um, the tournament's going to happen um, over the course of this week. Some matches have already taken place. Stan Wawrinka beat uh, Raleigh Apelka today. That was his first win since 2021 at the Australian Open. So well done, Stan Wawrinka. Uh, Dennis Shapovalov had a meltdown today. What else is new? Uh, but he won his match. So well done to him. Beats uh, Lorenzo Sonigo. Matt saw it. All I'm going to say about this is that Denis Shapovalov has obviously not watched Martina Hingis versus Steffi Graf in the 1999 Roland Garros final because he does not know that you cannot cross the net to point out a mark. And how he is a professional tennis player and doesn't know that rule is beyond me. But he knows it now. He does. He he also doesn't seem to know that the the official 
terminology in tennis is shut your fuck up, <laughs> not shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's yeah. very important that that's... <laughs> so, Dennis, go back and watch... Daniel go back Medvedev. and watch Sitsipas Medvedev Miami 2018 yeah. and go back and watch Graf Hingis Roland Garros 1999. Yeah. That's your homework. That's right. Um, okay. Uh, Naomi Osaka's withdrawn. Achilles injury, she's got, um, sadly. Let's hope she's better soon. A uh, couple of good matches, though, in the first round, including uh, Emma Raducanu against Bianca Andreescu. Um, and Nadal and Djokovic have been drawn drawn in the same half. Djokovic needs to reach the semi-finals to retain the number one ranking. Um, and Medvedev's going to be back in Geneva next week. So uh, that's going to be interesting to see if that actually ends up happening. I've missed Medvedev on clay. He was a right laugh last year. Mm. <laughs> he was. Yeah. It was. It was in Rome, wasn't it? When he said uh, he said this surface was for dogs or something. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, Gilles Simon has retired, or is going to retire at the end of the year. Um, Announced during the Alcaraz Djokovic match. Yeah, he took one look at that. <laughs> I'm not playing against him. I'm out of here. (laughs) Decided to bury the bad news in the middle of that one. Uh, But good career. Blimey, a way better career than I'd have have expected he would have had. Um, And, uh, yeah, he's been playing for a long while now. Uh, Right, mascots. Let's end on a nice note because our mascot this week is Ted. And Ted is owned by friend of the tennis podcast, Mark Forbes, who is Southampton FC's kit man and has been a great friend to us for many a year. He's now an official friend as well. Um, And Ted is six years old. He's a Pomeranian. How do I say this, Catherine? A Pomeranian. Pomeranian. Pomeranian Terrier. Uh, who loves chasing tennis balls, loves Southampton FC, obviously, and he also has a small portion of London pride when he's at the local pub. Very nice. Uh, Don't let Billy Jean hear about that. <laughs> I used to live below a pair of Pomeranians called Rocky and Elvis, and Elvis mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Right, okay. Well, anyway, Ted is wearing a T-shirt that's got a picture of a John McEnroe circa 1981 headband on, uh, and Andre Agassi and Bjorn Borg as well. It's a very nice T-shirt, Ted. We like it. We like Ted. We like Kitman Forbesy. Yes, Uh, fellow fellow Premier League Southampton. Just thought I'd just thought I'd get that in there. Catherine, do you want to come and do our own (laughs) podcast? Because not of anyone anymore. Yeah, let's go back to the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> when we just use, can just suffer together. Uh, I've got my own mascot, which is Darwin. Catherine's got Carter. Matt's got Gerald. Poor old Gerald, who uh, left us last week. And uh, we're thinking of Daryl and Liz. Billie Jean is sponsored by Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss. Uh, Chris Albert Lee and Carl Weingartner are, are our top blokes and executive producers. And Matt, we have some shout outs. We do. We have Diane Martin from Melbourne, but now living in Bangkok. Oh, hello, Diane. Hello, Diane. Like Diane Parry. Who's Diane Parry? The, f- the French tennis player. Really? And Roland Garros wildcard recipient. Yes. Annually. Mm. If you can name me another tennis Diane, David, I'm all ears, but I think I've done well there. Uh, okay, well, I've never heard of her, but anyway, I can't think of any others. And uh, uh, I guarantee she exists. I'm, I think she's French. Okay, I'll believe you. And Diane... Anyway, thank you, Diane. Marvellous friend. Thank you so much, Matt. We also have Mariana Erica Manessi, who is in Corfu great name oh imagine living in Corfu oh yes please it's like sort of living in Honolulu isn't it being on holiday permanently Mm. Mm. fantastic I assume Mariana is the female version of Mariano of um, Puerta and Zabaleta fame yeah Puerta who was Rafael Nadal's first victim in the French Open final 13 Mm. titles ago hmm yeah, anyway, that's not your name, Mariana. I realise no. that, but I can't think of a tennis Mariana. So you are a one-off, and we thank you for your support. We do. 
I thought of a Diane, by the way. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Diane, oh. Diane from Holtz, I believe, reached, reached an Australian Open final one year. She's sort of 70s era. It's just showing off, Matt. Next. How do you know that? That's Tennis amazing. relived. <laughs> and we also have Matt. Matt Fribbents from London. Oh, good Hello, old Matt. Matt. We like Matt. All right, Matt. Most of the time, and they're not being smug about football, we <laughs> like Matt. Who do you support, Matt? Better be somebody lower than Reading and Albion. Anyway, carry on, Matt. Well, I haven't got much more to say, other than uh, <laughs> this Matt has actually told a lovely story uh, about his first ever Wimbledon experience, watching Britain beat Egypt in a Davis Cup match on Court One in 1996, which he believes was one of the last matches ever played on the old Court One at Wimbledon. Yeah, David's nodding. Remember it well. You and me, Matt. <laughs> We can do our own relive to all about Britain against Egypt from the 90s. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, Catherine doesn't seem overly interested. Um, anyway, um, very much enjoyed this uh, this edition of the Tennis Podcast. And um, having you back, Catherine, looking forward to going to Roland Garros in just over a week's time. Can't wait. We've got loads of uh, other shows to record in the meantime. We'll be back on Thursday with our Thursday show, then a Rome review on Monday, and we've got Tennis Relived coming the way of Friends of the Tennis Podcast next week. And we've got a couple of belting shows uh, lined up for you. We'll tell you all about them in our, in our newsletter tomorrow. Uh, if you'd like to become a friend, please do. That's what gets keeps the show on the road. That's what gets us to, to Roland Garros and, and to the other Grand Slams that we're travelling to this year. Um, so thank you for all of those of you that are. If you'd like to sign up, uh, the link is in the show notes. Do become a friend. And uh, yeah, we'll speak to you on Thursday. 